Well, this morning, I'm going to be preaching a sermon in our messy church sermon series that's entitled Money, Sex, and Power. So what I want to do this morning is I'm going to be talking about a biblical perspective on sex. And if you're our guest this morning, you picked the right morning to be here. <laughs> Oftentimes while I'm preaching, just so you know, I'm kind of got a synonym for the word sex and that's physical intimacy. I am well aware that there are young ears in this room. And so as a parent, I can tell you that this will not be off color in any way, but I think as parents, if you think it would be wise to slip out with your child, I would encourage you to do that. That's totally up to you as a parent. I know I've announced for three weeks that this would be the topic that we would speak on or I would preach on this morning. So again, I'm well aware that there are young years in the room, but as parents, that obviously is your decision. I do want to say this at the outset, that what we're going to talk about is not to bring condemnation on anyone at all. But it is very clear in the scriptures that as followers of Jesus, we are called to holiness and to wholeness. This messy church sermon series has been taken from the book of 1 Corinthians. Corinth is a city, and I've talked about this every single week, that Corinth is a city that at its center was a temple, to, a temple to the goddess Aphrodite. She was the goddess of relationship and passion and children and birth and all of the above. And at the core of her worship were temple prostitutes. Extra-biblical historians tell us that there were thousands of them. Not only this, this was a port city. And so there were seafaring people that were coming in and utilizing the prostitution that was available. And this liberal sexual scope had really literally taken over the entire city. I don't think I have to really take things too far to say that the culture in which we live is very, very similar. That Charlottesville and Corinth have a lot in common when we talk about money, sex, and power. I do want to say at the outset, though, that Paul even admits in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, that we are not called to be the moral police of the world. He clearly says that. When he begins to talk about physical intimacy, he talks about how this is for people in the church who have been called to follow Jesus. This is not something we superimpose on the culture around us. If we do, everyone will end up frustrated. This, again, is the call of Jesus to those who follow him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says this. It is the introductory paragraph as Paul writes this letter to the church of Corinth. Here's what he said. Again, we've read this every week. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother Sosthenes. To the church of God in Corinth, that's who the letter is to. It's to the church. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, sanctification, remember, is a process. We talked about that in week two. 
It is a process of moving towards and being more like Jesus. For the church of God in Corinth to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called, this is a calling, and called to be his holy people together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. In other words, this letter is written to you and to me. It's to anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. If you are not a follower of Jesus and you are here this morning, I encourage you to kind of listen in, to lean in, to think and be very thoughtful about what Scripture is going to bring to us this morning and what I'm going to preach on. But again, this is for those of us who call ourselves Jesus followers. Paul, in writing to the church of Corinth, has to deal with sexual misconduct. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 through 20, he brings his argument to this church. And here's what he says. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? There's a good chance they did not know that. They didn't know that. In other words, this is being uploaded to them for the very first time. Or maybe he is reminding them. But for some of us, What I'm going to preach on this morning, you've never heard before. It's brand new to you. For others of us, we need to be reminded. But again, Paul writes, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the member of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know, he asked the question again, do you not know? Some of them obviously didn't. And the reason why is most of them are Gentiles. They're not Jews. Jews had a sexual ethic from the Older Testament. The Gentiles had none. And so now Paul is saying again, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. In other words, there's something unique about sexual sin. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. I want you to notice in this text that that Paul talks about the idea of one flesh. What Paul is doing is he is referencing the creation account of Adam and Eve, how they came together, and the Bible says they became one flesh. What's interesting is it's not just Paul that references this, Jesus does as well. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 2 through 6, it says this, large crowds followed him, meaning Jesus, and he healed them there. Miracles were happening, and some Pharisees came to him to test him. Have you ever had a conversation with someone where you knew it really wasn't a conversation, it was a test? Ever have that? They're never fun. 
Well, these individuals, these Pharisees, some of these religious leaders come to test him and they ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Divorce was rampant in the time of Jesus. Rampant. Haven't you read? Jesus replied that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and he said... For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become what? One flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. separate. Just like Paul, Jesus references these texts from the book of Genesis that talk about how two people coming together literally in the eyes of God become one. They become one. Now what we need to understand is that the Apostle Paul introduces to us in what we've already read two concepts that I want us to understand. The first is one flesh. And the second is sexual immorality. The Apostle Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Why? Because all other sins are external, but there's something unique about sexual sin and what it does to people. It is unique. What is the idea of one flesh? Let's read what Moses writes to us in the book of Genesis in chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. Here's what the text says. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his what? Wife. He leaves mom and dad and is united to his wife, and they become what? One flesh. Adam and his wife. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. I have been in ministry over 30 years. I will tell you, I have lost count of the number of people that I have sat down to speak with, that when we talk about physical intimacy, shame is the overarching concept for them. When we talk about one flesh, the Bible presents to us God's divine intent that Adam and Eve came together, there was no shame, they were naked, and they became one flesh. They literally became one. What that means in the Jewish mind, where two people who have been living separately have been living separate lives, now come together in marriage, and when they do, they become one flesh. That speaks of a spiritual, emotional, relational, physical, literally becoming one, where one person begins to disappear and the other person disappears, and they literally become one. What a beautiful thing. We're going to talk more about the biblical concept of physical intimacy near the end of this message. 
But suffice it to say that when the Apostle Paul shows up and talks about sexual intimacy, physical intimacy to the church of Corinth, he says in, in, in 1 Corinthians 6.16, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute becomes one flesh with her? You become one flesh with her. The two become one flesh. Now what's interesting is, if you read the literature, and I've read a lot of it in preparation for this sermon, if you read the literature of secular counselors, in other words, non-sacred, people that are writing from the perspective that faith isn't in the view, some of these authors maybe are people of faith, but they don't say they are. I'm assuming that they're not. But much of the literature that I read, these counselors are struggling to articulate that physical intimacy has an impact on the people that goes way, way beyond the physical. Way beyond. As a matter of fact, Dr. Meg Jay, who's a professor here, she's a psychologist at the University of Virginia. I've referenced her book before. She wrote a book entitled The Defining Decade, Why Your 20s Matter and How to Make the Most of Them Now. The Defining Decade, from 20-year-old to 30-year-old. What she writes about, after having counseled thousands of 20-somethings and people moving up into their 30s, what she talks about is that the sexual culture in which we live, the hookup culture in which we live, has left people broken, dysfunctional, hurting, and unable to make commitments. And then when the age of 30 hits, they begin to think about marriage. But the problem is, and she reports on this, that somehow they cannot shed their past. That what was explained to them as being freedom turns out it's not really freedom. But stuff of the past is there with them as they move towards marriage. What fascinated me is that Dr. Meg Jay was very cautious about people living together before marriage. She does not come from a Christian ethic. What she talked about, though, is she's observed this too many times, and she feels like it is not the best course of action. So when we look back into Scripture, what we will notice is, is that the Apostle Paul shows up and he begins to talk about one flesh. Again, we're going to get back to that near the end. But what we see in Scripture and what Paul's warning of is that there are people who their physical intimacy is happening with all types of people. And the Apostle Paul is warning them that you are becoming one flesh with that person. It's more than just physical. There's something else that happens. And then we pick up our reading as Paul writes further in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Here's what he writes. Here's what it says. I have the right to do anything. That's a quotation from Corinthian culture. I have a right to do what I want. Does that sound familiar? They said, I have a right to do anything, you say. And he responds... 
but not everything's beneficial. I have the right to do anything they say again. And he says in response, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. You see, in Corinth, the overarching cultural ethos was this, I can do what I want, and whatever I want to do, I have a right to do, especially with my own body. And the Apostle Paul shows up and says, but what you're doing, is it truly beneficial? What the literature is starting to show is that people that view sexuality this way we're finding it isn't beneficial. It's actually harmful. And that is what Paul is saying. Again, someone would respond to Paul when he shows up with this idea of holy or godly physical intimacy. They would say to him again, I have the right to do anything. And Paul's response is this, but I, meaning himself, will not be mastered by anything. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying that you claim you have a right to do whatever you want, and you have been. But what Paul is noticing is what these people are doing now has control of them. In other words, they no longer have the choice. They are now in bondage. And what they said they had the right to be involved with has now taken them over and they've lost the ability to stop. Paul is saying, it is true. You have freedom to do what you want, but is it beneficial? You do have the freedom to do these things, but some of what you're involved with has now mastered you. It's got a grip on you and you can't seem to get away. Notice what the people in Corinth said. They said that sex is like food. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food. In other words, physical intimacy has nothing to do with anything beyond some biological pleasure reality. That we are made a certain way we have appetites behind how we're made, and all that matters is the biological side of things. But what Paul is arguing for, and even secular therapists are now talking about, is that there's something more that happens. It goes beyond just appetites and physical actions. There's a much deeper, deeper impact on the lives of the people. Paul steps forward and he says this in 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee from sexual immorality. Run from it. Now, what's fascinating about Scripture is oftentimes when we talk about certain types of sin, the Bible would encourage us to reason with stuff, to process through stuff, 
Do you know what's stunning about this type of sin? The Bible says, run. Don't hang around. Run. Isn't that fascinating? And Paul's very clear, and we read it earlier, that there's something unique about this area where people can get out of God's best. He says, run from it. Do you know why? Because Paul's keenly aware that the impact goes way, way beyond the physical. It goes deeply into the realm of the soul and deeply into the realm of spiritual. You see, what Paul talks about is that first thought that two become one flesh, that there's something spiritual that happens between people who are involved with physical intimacy. But the other thing that he brings out, which I mentioned earlier, was the idea of sexual immorality. It is the Greek word porneia. It's where we get the word pornography from. Paul uses this word several times in the book of 1 Corinthians. He uses the word pernea. And what we can quickly detect if you look at the scriptures is that what Paul is referencing and what the Bible references as pornea is any sexual expression outside of marriage, outside of marriage. When we begin to talk about pornea, it is so easy for me just for a moment to speak on pornography. In preparation for this sermon, being very careful, but I read some intellectual studies on what's happening in the Western world. The book that literally came to the front was written by Fiona Atwood. She is a German intellectual and a professor in Germany. The title of her book is Mainstreaming Sex, The Sexualization of Western Culture. And in her text, she traces the historicity of it, but she also talks about the pervasive in impact of pornography on our culture. Ultimately, her book is about this. We are freer now sexually than we have ever been in recent history. And the question is, how's that working out for us? How's it going? By the way, that's Paul's argument too. You are free to do what you want, but is it beneficial? You are free to do what you want, but apparently it has mastered you. When you thought you were in control, now it is in control of you. What's fascinating is, the book of 1 Corinthians is actually a response to a letter from the church of Corinth that was written to Paul. And we pick up our theme again, the theme of porneia again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Chapter 7, verse 1 says this, Now for the matters you wrote about, in other words, they literally wrote a letter to Paul. I know this will blow your mind, but there was no texting back then. There was no email. Letters were written and received and responded to. It says, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. In other words, somehow there was a pervasive thought in the church of Corinth that physical intimacy between men and women was not a good thing. 
It was a bad thing. Paul writes, but since sexual immorality or porneia, because porneia is occurring, each man should have sexual relationships or relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to the husband and the next sentence is stunning. Paul writes, in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. It's the first time in ancient antiquity where the woman has equal authority for sexual intimacy. It's shocking. Paul elevates women in marriage and said this is a mutual reality. Here's what I know. Many have taken these verses from 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 4, and they've been utilized to weaponize people to put upon their spouse. That is not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about the beauty of becoming one flesh and God's original intent and the beauty of it. Somehow, it had crept into the first century church of Corinth that physical intimacy was not a good thing. Now, if I could push the pause button and just say this before I move on. I was raised in a church where every comment about physical intimacy was negative. The church would try to shame us as young people to keep us away from it. How in the world can you go from bringing shame to where suddenly people move towards oneness and marriage and all that shame just dissipates? It's a horrific misreading of Scripture. The Bible teaches us clearly that God created physical intimacy, that Adam and Eve experienced that in the garden and felt no shame and they became one flesh. The other thing is, is the book of Song of Solomon is all about physical intimacy and the pleasure of it. If you were to read in Song of Solomon chapter 5, you would discover where a young woman speaks of the physical passion for her husband-to-be. And all throughout the book, the husband speaks the same of her. Please do not turn to chapter 5 right now and start reading. We will never get you back again. <laughs> yes, it's metaphors, but you don't have to be all that bright to figure out what the metaphors are saying. You see, the idea is, is that the Song of Solomon was included in the canon of Scripture because physical intimacy was created by God. It's meant to be pleasurable. It's meant to bring a husband and wife together and to have them live in oneness. It is a beautiful, God-blessed, God-given reality. It's an amazing thing. And the reason, again, why I'm saying this it's because the church, more often than not, just has prohibitions and cautionary tones. But I don't think we can hear this from the Apostle Paul. Paul shows up and he begins to teach about this intimacy with Christ in view, with two people becoming one flesh and the beauty of it. But he does bring to us the idea of porneia, sexual sin. 
where because of this, people are moving outside of God's best. And when they do, Paul brings a warning. And the warning is that there's a spiritual component to physical intimacy. It's not just physical. There's more that happens. And again, secular counselors are cluing in on this, but they don't have a spiritual wherewithal on how to comment about it, but the Bible does. Please know this. As we begin to talk about putting feet to our faith, in putting feet to our faith, again, please know this, that God's creative intent for sex and for physical intimacy is that in marriage there would be the oneness that happens, that there would be a spiritual, physical, emotional, relational oneness where two people come together and literally cease to be two people, they literally become one. And yes, the Bible teaches us it is to be pleasurable. That's how God has made it. And as we learned this morning through the baby dedication, it also has to do with babies. Now, I would tell you, though, that there are churches who have said that physical intimacy is only for procreation. That is a unilateral misreading of Scripture. Unilateral. Yes, babies are a result of that. That is one of God's intent and deny, designs from it, but it is not the only one. It's about pleasure between two people in marriage. Now, here's what I know. I know that some of us are hearing this for the first time. How do we put feet to our faith? We put feet to our faith by prayerfully thinking about the scriptures and God's loving correction that he brings to us. And we prayerfully begin to bring our lives in alignment with what scripture says. It will mean changes for some of us, for sure. There are others of us that are sitting here listening to this sermon, and it is newer to you, but you look in the rearview mirror of your life, and you think about how often you've been outside of what we've been talking about. Here's what I can tell you. I have watched God miraculously heal people and free them up to be involved with a godly marriage. I've seen it over and over. I have watched as people who've had pasts that now they wish they could reach back into their history and reconstruct that narrative but now here they are, I have watched over and over and over again as people have brought their physical intimacy to God and they have truly begun to believe that their body is not their own. They've been bought with a price that physical intimacy is a spiritual thing as they bring themselves before the Lord and they submit to that understanding. I've watched God heal hundreds and hundreds of people. It's been stunning to me. And why would God heal? Because he wants the best for us. And it is true that physical intimacy and sex is truly at the core or close and near to the core of who and what we are. I would also say this, that if you are here 
and you've had experiences in this area that have traumatized your soul, I want to encourage you to please reach out for help. I have watched the past 30 years as people have reached out for help and they have found freedom in this area of their lives. Because there are many who are sitting here this morning who have had things done to them that they never asked for or would have ever wanted. And what was done to you was evil and it was not your fault. But there's a God who can take that and can heal it and can begin to set you free. I've seen it over and over and over again. In closing, as we put feet to our faith, Here's a quote that I want to have up on the screen. The quote is this. The call of Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, and the Scriptures is for us that commit, for us to commit the pleasure of physical intimacy to the deep, intimate, exclusive, lifetime commitment that is protected by the spiritual covenant of marriage, that we would make that commitment. And I know how countercultural this is. No one has to tell me. I live in this culture. Don't forget that. But the similarities between um, Corinth and Charlottesville are undeniable. We are called to live our physical intimacy in a very different way than the culture around us. And in truth, I have yet to meet a person who doesn't deeply, deeply long for that idea of in marriage having a physical intimacy that is deep and intimate and exclusive and it's based on a lifetime commitment to one person that is protected by the spiritual covenant of marriage. I knew it would be quiet during this entire sermon. But I'm going to ask that you would now stand into God's presence and that you would join me as you stand. And as we stand together, I'm going to ask that you would close your eyes into God's presence. That you would take a moment and you would offer your body to God. That's what Paul says. Paul says, don't you know that your body is the Lord's? And what we do with our physical bodies, with physical intimacy, deeply, deeply matters. It matters. As we stand into God's presence, I'm going to ask that you would offer your body to the Lord. For some of us, it'll mean asking God for healing. For others of us, it might be a recommitment to stay the course that God's called you to be a part of. But for all of us, it means a fresh, new, surrender of our bodies to the Lord, we would recognize the importance of this. 
If you're comfortable doing this, we often do this at City. If you would extend your hands in front of you, palms up. It's a sign of surrender and receptivity to the Lord. Jesus, now we stand in your presence. We ask that your scriptures would come alive in us. Lord, help us to be men and women. That although we can do what we want, we have the freedom to do what we want. We realize all things are not beneficial. So Lord, help us to be a group of people who are biblically based, relationally driven, and spirit-led in the area of our physical intimacy. In Jesus' name.